You're listening to the One Small Bite Podcast with me, your host, David Roscoe. For over a decade, I have built a successful nutrition practice helping thousands of people thrive, nourish their life, and break the cycle of crazy diets. We will take one small bite at a time to transform your health and develop a positive relationship to food. So let's chop the diet mentality, fuel your body, and nourish your soul. Okay, are you ready? Let's do this. Hey there, welcome to the One Small Bike Podcast. This is the podcast where people know that we talk about weight and loss as two totally separate concepts. Hey there. I'm your host, David Orozco, certified intuitive eating, registered dietitian nutritionist, and my practice is Orozco Nutrition. When you get a chance, come and visit us on the website, OrozcoNutrition.com. You can make a free discovery call, 15, 20 minutes to find out what we're about, what your insurance will cover, what our costs are, and hey, maybe if you just want to chat and tell me something about this podcast episode, that'd be great too. So visit us, OroscoNutrition.com, and I'd love to hear back from you. So I wanted to bring to you today an episode that I've been brewing up for the longest time, and I've been meaning to do it, but you know, as things happen, you get lost in one thing or another. So here it is, finally. Um, So this episode today, we're going to talk about weight loss surgery. And what weight loss surgery is, is it's also known as bariatric surgery. So we're going to talk about what it is, the types of surgery, the costs, the risks, the supposed benefits, and then we'll talk a little bit about how this plays out in real people's lives. I'm going to talk to you about Isabel, who is someone in my book that I write about that... uh, had a pretty interesting situation with weight loss surgery. So we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to talk about what we can do. And so I'm really excited to get this started. But before I do it, I wanted to bring something to you that that really made me think about this a little bit more deeply, if you would. I read this quote from Adam Grant. He's the author of Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. And he really puts something very interesting. It's kind of like this concept of rethinking. And so I wanted to throw this out there to you because, you know, it really had me thinking. He says, quote, reconsidering something we believe deeply can threaten our identities, making it feel as if we're losing a part of ourselves, end quote. When I read that in his book, I thought to myself, you know, this is exactly what people go through that are trying to lose weight, can't do it, and they feel like if they don't do a diet, who are they? What are they? Sometimes it feels like diets are the next hope or weight loss is gonna give me X or if I just get to this weight then not only will I be healthy, but people will tell me things are great and I'll look good and I'll feel good and, and, and things are only better there. We need to rethink that. Reconsidering something that we believe deeply, though, it can be very, very challenging. So this is one of the reasons why I want to talk to you about Isabel. Isabel is someone in my book that I write about. Now, I did change this person's name and 
kind of their consequences in life a little bit, just for privacy's sake. But generally speaking, Isabel is a 51-year-old mother of two. Her daughter has a child, a nine-month-old child, who lives at home with her boyfriend in their basement. And so Isabel is a grandmother. Her son is 19, and he's starting college. So she has done an amazing job raising these kids on her own after leaving their husband, who was a drunk, abusive, and emotionally neglectful and abusive as well. So Isabel made that hard choice. That was tough. I I think of the, I don't know if you've recently seen the show Maids on Netflix. I think of Isabel in that situation. I think about, gosh, what must have she gone through to get to that place in life? You know, it's really, really challenging for a lot of people. So needless to say, Isabel made that breakthrough. With that, though, she had done multiple diets in her life. Now, she's a successful career. She has a full-time position as a CPA in a large accounting firm, and she's done really well for herself. She's got not only a bachelor's degree, but a master's degree, and she's a single mother of two, a grandmother, so gosh, she's killing it. That's what I call a hero. That, to me, is a superpower, and the reason I say that is because I've got five sisters. I saw the strength and the power and the resilience that my sisters have had taking care of kids, being in abusive relationships, and having to get divorced, and and living alone, and raising their kids, and struggling, and you know trying to make a life for not just themselves, but for their kids, for their family. So, wow, it is a superpower. She came to me, and I, I think I talked about Isabel in the past, in a past episode, so bear with me if you've heard this one already, but she came to me a few years ago, and uh, she was interested in making and building a new relationship, a positive relationship with food and her body. She was finally t- t- tired of diets, and she wanted to do something different. The problem is, is that she kind of saw intuitive eating and the weight-inclusive approach as maybe as a backdoor. She's like, well, I've tried everything. I might as well go ahead and try this and let's see if it works. And I'm doing that in air quotes, folks. So I got to tell you, as you know, you can't do intuitive eating with weight loss. You can't do intuitive eating as maybe an opportunity to lose weight. And so if I just pay attention to my hunger, my fullness cues, I'll finally lose this weight. I don't know. That's that's not necessarily how your body is going to receive a new peaceful relationship with food, one that you pay attention to your body's hunger and fullness cues, and you're interoceptively aware of your physiological needs and make changes. I don't know. You could lose weight. You can't lose weight. But Isabel came in thinking that. And so we worked a little bit. And then I hadn't seen her. She stopped coming to visits. And I think I got an email or a call. I can't remember. And she had mentioned that she was interested in coming back, but she had gone to a bariatric hospital or bariatric center. And if you're not sure of what bariatric means, bariatric is another way of saying weight loss surgery. So it's, uh, I'm going to describe it in a little bit, but it's a way of going in and 
sort of um, cutting the size of your stomach and then rerouting your intestinal system so that it reduces what and how much you eat. But I'll get to that in a minute. With Isabel, it was interesting. She decided to do that and she had bariatric surgery. And so she, from what I remember her telling me, had lost a considerable amount of weight. I, I, I want to say it was somewhere around 100 pounds. And by the way, I'm sorry, I should have warned you. I am going to use weight and I'm going to use BMI from time to time as well. So if that triggers you, please fast forward through some of that. With that said, she lost a considerable amount of weight. And uh, she had uh, touched base with me about two, two and a half years later. And she said, David, I, I want to come back and see you. And I said, sure, let's get started. So we started working and she had brought up how she had started gaining weight. She had gained another... Oh, I, I can't remember. Let's just say 40 pounds, maybe. And she was really, really worried that the surgery wasn't working and she didn't know what she was doing wrong. She felt like she was doing everything that was she, she was supposed to do. She is eating very small amounts of food and she's exercising and yada, yada, yada. So uh, we started working with intuitive eating again. We started working on paying attention to hunger and fullness. We started paying attention to how she felt and how things were going for her. And things really started to change for her because she started really realizing and accepting the fact that her body changes and that bariatric surgery or weight loss surgery isn't what it really is cut out to be. It isn't a panacea. It isn't a guarantee that weight loss will occur and your body won't figure out a way of gaining it back. It just, that doesn't happen. You can't guarantee that. And I'll get to studies uh, indicating some of that in just a minute too. So Isabel and I started working more in that intuitive eating, weight-inclusive space, and she made an about-face. She made an about-face because one of the things that we focused on significantly was self-compassion. Self-compassion was at the core of what Isabel really needed. She needed to find kindness and gratitude and self-love, radical self-love and appreciation for all of the other things that she had and had to do. So let me talk about bariatric surgery because bariatric surgery, and again, my apologies, I'm going to go back and forth between bariatric surgery and weight loss surgery. So just know that, remember, bariatric surgery means weight loss surgery and vice versa. So bariatric surgery is a form of weight loss that requires alterations and changes to the digestive system with the intent of helping people, as I said a little while ago, lose weight. There are two main types of surgeries performed in the United States. Now, there are others, but the two main ones that are performed in the United States are what's called the sleeve gastrectomy and the Roux-en-Y or gastric bypass for short, it's called the Ruin Y. So technically, there are a couple of others, but for simplicity's sake, I'll stick to these two since these are the most common. But uh, the most commonly performed procedure today is the gastric sleeve, which is done on about 61% of the people that qualify for surgery. 
And that qualification, <laughs> quite honestly, it was made up by a body of scientists that say for a person with a certain BMI, they would really do best having this kind of surgery. And if a person has this BMI between that BMI and there aren't any comorbidities like hypertension or diabetes, so on and so forth, then either you can or you can get surgery or you have to get this other type of surgery. So in any way, in the United States, about 17% get the gastric bypass. Of the people that qualify, they get the gastric bypass. And so 61% get the gastric sleeve. That's, that's a pretty substantial number of people that get that type of surgery. And I'll get to what each of those are. Give you a little bit of background just so you know. When I first started my career as a dietitian about 15, sorry, about 18, 19 years ago, my very first job out of grad school was at a major bariatric center here in Atlanta. The hot quote unquote surgery back then was the lap band surgery. I told you that there were other types of surgery. This is where they actually insert a uh, plastic band that tightens around your stomach and then they inject a saline inside that band to tighten it. And that procedure is just actually not done anymore because they've learned that it slips or people have a lot of complications with the band as well. So I have seen a lot of people come into my office that have had surgery again to get it removed. So I see a significant number of people that have had that lap band removed. And now they're choosing to do one of the other surgeries like gastric sleeve or bypass. So let me talk first about the gastric bypass. This is one of the oldest bariatric procedures still performed today. And it offers what the physicians call the greatest amount of excess weight loss as it also is known as the highest likelihood of almost what they call eliminating, uh, that is, again, a, a word in quotes, type 2 diabetes. So again, I, I put eliminating quotes because, there's, because there is no known cure for diabetes. What I often see is that while initially blood sugar and insulin levels improve, people often have blood sugar complications again when they gain weight or not. Sometimes they don't gain weight and they're still having problems with their blood sugar. In fact, most people I've worked with gain some of the weight back after surgery. The gastric bypass is both the most restrictive and the most malabsorptive of the two types of weight loss procedures. People who have had the gastric bypass are going to be required to take a chewable iron, a chewable calcium, a chewable, chewable multi, uh, multivitamin, mineral supplement for the rest of their lives. And they are required to either take a sublingual B12 or a monthly B12 injection because the stomach was involved in producing a uh, component that helps bind B12 and therefore the ability to absorb B12 decreases because you have a smaller pouch, smaller stomach, and you're not producing that uh, component that helps you digest and, and, and metabolize B12. So we have to ask people that have had bariatric surgery to either do it sublingually or to do a shot. Most people end up doing the shot. I think it's once a month that they take the, the B12 shot. The gastric bypass also causes the most side effects, such as regurgitation, heartburn, vomiting, diarrhea, 
digestive problems, some of which occur because of something called dumping syndrome, which is when a higher than normal amount of sugar and or fat empty into the ileum. So what they do in the procedure is they cut the stomach the uh, into a ping pong size pouch and they lower part of the intestinal tract, which is called the ileum, is then attached back into that small pouch. And um, the rest of the digestive tract, the rest of the stomach, the duodenum, which is the very first part of the intestinal tract, the jejunum, are all intact, but they're not involved in digestion that much anymore. And so the ileum is reattached to the uh, stomach And then the surgeons do somewhat of an attachment of the duodenum lower in the ileum tract as well. So you don't absorb the nutrients as well in the ileum because it's the the second third or the third third part of the small intestinal tract. It's not used to receiving food. And so just a small amount of sugar or fat and or a volume of food can cause all of these symptoms and problems. And I have seen a lot of people have had severe diarrhea, vomiting, constipation because of that procedure. So um, again, this is a a big invasive type of surgery. And so it does lead to the greatest weight loss compared to the other types of um, weight loss surgeries. But it also has the greatest risks. The risks from surgery include bleeding, infection, leaking, and infection from the site of the cut and stapling of the stomach and intestines, which can cause diarrhea, blood clots, and in summer occasions, death. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about this because it is important. So if this is a little triggering for you or scary, go ahead and fast forward. I think it's important to say I've had in my career approximately three people, not approximately, three people who I know have passed away after bariatric surgery. Look, I'm not trying to say this to scare the life out of you. Bariatric surgery has a very low death rate, but I have seen it. And so what ends up happening is a lot of times there's very bad malabsorption issues that come along and or these other complications. I've seen people with C. difficile infection, and that's a very, very difficult infection to fight. C. difficile is a bacterium that can cause a lot of problems. Um, And so I've seen that happen with several clients as well. Generally speaking, with a lot of people that have had bariatric surgery, I also see, have seen, I should say, a considerable amount of weight loss from their pre-surgical weight. The problem is, is that it is not long-term. In the long-term, the gastric bypass procedure reduces the body's ability to absorb other nutrients, such as calcium, iron, and B12, as I mentioned earlier, but also vitamin A and vitamin E. The biggest challenge is the difficulty with protein absorption by volume, particularly early, earlier after surgery, so closer to the time where you have the surgery. Since the surgery restricts the total amount of food, the body doesn't get enough protein at one meal, and there's less absorption area for that protein. 
This can, te- this can lead to malnutrition complications. Lack of protein is the number one reason why people have malnutrition. Now, you can have malnutrition and be in a large body. But the malnutrition complications include things like brittle nails, hair loss, and dry skin on the early onset, which are what we consider mild complications. The malnutrition can also diminish the the body's ability to produce red blood cells or immune fighting cells. So your immune system gets compromised, which can increase the risk of developing things like anemia or osteoporosis or, or fighting other infections like coronavirus or the flu. And so there's a greater likelihood that people will have bigger challenges fighting off some of these infections. Greater likelihood, not always. Many people will end up developing gallstones also because of the rapid weight loss. Now, I typically see this happening with women, and we're not sure why, but when women lose weight very rapidly, they can develop gallstones in their uh, gallbladder. So what happens is, is that the, the bile crystallizes and blocks the ducts between the bile, excuse me, the bile duct between the gall, uh, gallbladder and the intestinal tract. And so you end up having to get a, um, a gallstone removal surgery. So you can see this. Many people also develop swallowing difficulties and have problems such as reef acid reflux, which can also develop into what's considered GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease. And this is a little bit more dangerous because this is where the lining of the esophagus can start eroding, and that can lead to things like cancer. So you got a lot of risks here is what I'm getting at, as you can see. I will mention that another thing that tends to also happen quite often that is mild but, oh, so annoying, is constipation. I see this in so many clients that have had bariatric surgery. They have a hard time going. And so constipation is difficult because in order to have a regular bowel movement, you have to have regular food consumption. There needs to be certain nutrients, obviously things like fiber, which is a lot harder to digest when you've had bariatric surgery because it overfills the pouch. And it's very difficult to consume enough fiber because you have to get enough protein And you also have to get all those other vitamins and minerals at the same time. You can see how this starts snowballing. So what people often do is they just don't eat. And so this is what surgeons and doctors would say, hey, see, these people aren't gaining weight. Well, of course they're not. They're not not eating anything. Quite honestly, this to me is a disordered eating phenomenon, quite honestly, which can probably develop into a not typical eating disorder. And I think that that is something that we really need to look at in research. I don't think we look at that. The number of people that do some really crazy things to try to avoid some of these side effects of bariatric surgery, it's quite easily overlooked. Speaking of overlooked, there's another problem long-term that is a complication that arises from any form of gastric surgery or weight loss surgery. It is the long-term psychological effects, such as what I just mentioned a little while ago, which is disordered eating or eating disorders, but it really puts a, a, a strain psychologically on your relationship with food because 
You know you are hungry in one way or another, but you can't eat. I have seen in a lot of instances where clients who have had surgery three, four years out complain to me that they can't stop their nighttime snacking or they get the weirdest cravings for certain foods. And I mean, it could be the weirdest things. I've had people eat eggs with um, hot sauce in it at late at night or they'll eat um ah uh, the obvious things like uh, candies or or sugar or plain straight up sugar i'm not talking about candy i'm talking about literally will have spoon spoonful of sugar <laughs> or or a couple something that will help them feel a little bit better because they they just can't get that craving out of them and it lasts for a while again it builds a very negative relationship to their bodies and to food Speaking about that relationship to the body, some people lose a considerable amount of weight. So they end up getting this excess skin around the stomach and they end up having an elective surgery called a tummy tuck or also known as paniculectomy. And this is an elective surgery. And what we don't realize is what happens down the road several years if they gain the weight back. I mean, it's just too much. There's a lot to consider here. All right, so those are a little bit of the complications and problems that we see with well, gastric bypass. With the sleeve gastrectomy procedure, it is much less com- complicated and avoids much of the uh, malabsorptive complications that we soon saw in the gastric bypass. In this situation, the, the stomach is cut into a banana-like shape and the intestinal tract is left intact. It doesn't offer as much weight loss as the gastric bypass, but it is the most popular bariatric surgery currently performed. In my experience, I see a lot of people, a lot more people that have had the gastric sleeve that come into my office complaining that they're not losing the weight, that haven't been able to lose as much weight, or they're gaining their weight back. And this could be for a variety of reasons, but the problem is, is that because this surgery doesn't have the uh, as much of the, as the weight loss effect as the gastric bypass or or one other one, which is called the duodenal switch, which I'm not going to talk about here. What ends up happening is people lose a lot of faith and they think there's something wrong with them and they're really frustrated. Some people end up getting a revision surgery, and they end up going for a gastric bypass, which, of course, is uh, not super common, but it does happen. So let me switch a little bit here and talk about the organizations, because that's going to bring us some interesting information. These organizations are, well, I'm going to talk about one in particular that provides a lot of the research or funding for research for bariatric or weight loss surgery. So according to the American Society of Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery, also known as ASMBS, the key organization of surgeons and integrated health professionals, they provide surgical and safety guidelines, procedures, training, and research for bariatric surgery. They found that in 2011, the number of people having bariatric surgery was 158,000 people. In 2018, those numbers nearly doubled So in seven years, it doubled to 252,000 people in the United States. Again, this is coming from ASMBS. So in my experience, I see a fair amount of people two to 10 years 
out out of surgery, like I mentioned a while ago, who are wanting to lose weight again. This is a clear indication of how this extremely complicated procedure may only help people lose weight for those first two years. Then it's just like any other diet. The weight loss is a significant indicator of a future weight gain. I've talked about this in the past. Anything that forces your body to lose weight is perceived as a threat. A threat induces a stress response. A stress response may mean wow to the body. It may mean wow, I am not getting any food. I need to slow down my metabolism. Otherwise, I won't have energy to do all these other important things in life, which are important for my job, for my family, for my finances, for my safety, for my security, etc., etc. And so, therefore, your metabolism slows down in order to provide the energy to your brain in order to do that. And one can argue that even that may not function well because people who are hungry are often tired, irritable, frustrated, can't focus, have a hard time sleeping, so on and so forth. So in that situation, you get a stress response. What happens in a stress response? The HPA axis kicks in. What is the HPA axis? The hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So this is where the brain, the hypothalamus, communicates to the pituitary gland to, uh, gland to release and uh, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and dopamine in order to increase your blood rate or your heart rate, uh, open your blood vessels, vasodilate, and vasodilate your air passages so you get a lot of oxygen. The adrenal glands are communicated in order to release cortisol and glucagon in order to allow sugar, glucose, and fat, triglycerides, and others to into your blood so that now you have the energy to fight whatever is threatening you. But there's really no fight. There's no run. And so what ends up happening is your metabolic system slows and you become super efficient at storing fat. Why? Because, well, where else is that glucose and that fat going to go if it's not going to be used? <laughs> right back into the body for storage. And so the body then says, well, if that person will then eat, then I'm just going to go ahead and stick it into storage because they're more than likely going to do it again. This is where the complications get really, really interesting when it comes to weight loss. But let me digress a little bit back into the research of surgery. Let's also look at the financial burden of bariatric surgery. So let's do some quick math. The running average cost in the United States for bariatric surgery is approximately $20,000 if you're paying cash. Now, that price may vary depending on the bariatric center, uh, but let's just use $20,000 because it is a nice round number. Just so you know, it could range up to as much as $25,000. But at $20,000 $20, per surgery times 252,000 people, that's approximately five billion dollars a year and that's five billion with a b and that's just for surgery alone that does not include all of the tests copays medications medical visits nutrition and psychological evaluation classes and requirements needed of any person going through bariatric surgery in fact most people when they start going to bariatric surgery they get a class to introduce them into bariatric surgery, what it is and what to expect. 
And then they have to go to doctor visits. And then they have to get approval from their insurance company. And their insurance company might require them to do certain things like get psychological therapy or to get a nutrition program started to prove that they can't lose weight. And then once they're approved by their insurance company, the bariatric center might require them to have certain tests. I mean, I'm, it's going to go on. So there are indirect expenses as well. For example, simply like parking fees for medical and healthcare visits because they're going to go to the hospital and the doctor a heck of a lot. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So that also means time off work. They lose money there. Time off to recover from surgery. Travel time, gas, all the food, drinks, supplements, plates, and tools required before and after surgery. All the co-pays, co-insurance, things that the insurance company doesn't pay for before the actual surgery. So it's unclear what insurance plans cover because plans vary so widely but you can bet it's a lot less than what you and I would pay. The problem, too, is that sometimes because people have so many things going on in their life, their insurance plan may change mid-year. Depending on their employer, they may go from one plan to another plan right in the middle of when they're waiting for approval for bariatric surgery. If they get into a new insurance plan, you know what happens. They have to start the process almost all over again. I see some people who are trying to have bariatric surgery wait sometimes as little as six months. That's usually the very fastest that I've seen from time of introduction to actual surgery, sometimes up to two or three years. So some people get very frustrated. Some insurance plans don't pay. And so the other problem is that if they don't pay, people are going outside the United States to get the surgery done. Now, they get it done in places like Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, India, even Poland. What's interesting about all of this is that you still have to take time off. You have to do the research by yourself. You have to find a dietitian and probably a psychologist or a therapist to help you out with that, someone who specializes in this. And so they have to do that on their own. They don't have any classes. They're not uh, aware of all of the diet restrictions. And so it gets even more complicated. And I have clients that have seen me in that situation too. So, um, you know, there's a lot. There's just a lot. So in my experience, bariatric surgery is the most extreme weight loss treatment out there with little long-term benefits which means it will work probably at the beginning. Sounds just like any other diet people do. But who knows? Two to five years, there is a very strong likelihood that the weight will come back and or come back more than where the person started. Now, we don't have really good research beyond five or ten years. So we don't know what is really happening I will say that because so many people gain weight after surgery, they probably don't go back to the same bariatric center where they had the surgery. So it's very, very difficult for people to, for bariatric centers to do the research. They lose touch and they're not really interested in getting these types of research data there. I think, who knows, maybe because just the money is not there and the money's really in the surgery, and so let me show you what happens two years after. 
Um, I'm afraid that they probably suspect that five or ten years after people are gaining weight, and so why would they want to do research on that? So, hmm. on one hand, bariatric surgery does promise to help people lose incredibly large amounts of weight to maybe improve their health, their blood pressure, eliminate diabetes. Ugh, I don't know about that, and maybe other promises. Yet these promises don't work for everyone. And you can't make these promises because everybody's body is different. Another thing to consider, and something very interesting, if weight loss surgery had to go through FDA approval like a drug, I don't think it would stand mustard. To promise that this drug is only going to work for 5% of the population and or it's only not guaranteed to last beyond two years, not to mention the side effects and all the complications and all the challenges that I just mentioned to you. Dumping syndrome, diarrhea, constipation, vomiting, headaches, dehydration, immune function problems, anemia, osteoporosis, eating disorders, extreme costs, missing work, financial hardships, time and travel, and all of the other stuff that I mentioned a little while ago. Oh, and by the way, not to mention the possibility of weight regain, and you may have to consider revision surgery. <sighs> what? What's worse is the profound and deep-rooted psychological messages, such as the plethora of weight stigmatization from society. People, media, and culture telling them that they are less than human or not normal for being in the size that they're in. I was just watching a movie with my daughter. We were watching Despicable Me 2. And I thought it was very interesting because the two main characters who are evil are in large bodies. And so people in large bodies in that movie are made fun of or viewed as evil or they're dumb or slow or something is wrong. It, it comes in a lot of different ways. And that's just one of many, many, many ways that society plays it out. And that's because people have the same fears. It's a form of discrimination and racism. And this is something that I told my daughter. I said, just like discriminating someone because they're black or Latino or Asian or of other BIPOC or marginalized populations, it is no different to say that people in large bodies are a certain way. They're going to die early or they're lazy or they're dumb or you name it. Or ugly. That's another thing. And then because society is saying that, a lot of people in large bodies also believe it themselves. On the other hand, bariatric surgery is also viewed as a cop-out by people in thin bodies. How about them apples? It therefore creates a lopsided hierarchical standard that thin people make, which causes people in large bodies to feel like exhibits at a museum or as if they are wrong for doing bariatric surgery. They, they can't win for trying here, folks. Thin people perceive bariatric surgery as an easy way out of losing weight. So both these forces only further dehumanize people in large or fat bodies, pushing them into further hiding from their problems. 
like I had mentioned to you in previous episodes about Jeff, who wouldn't go to the doctor because he was sick and tired of hearing the same BS and being blamed for the fact that he couldn't lose the weight. This is nothing more than the enormous amounts of stress, which adds more complications to the body, as I had mentioned a little while ago. You know what's also interesting is when we look at the body of research now, we can actually tell you that people who are in overweight or large bodies and uh, have a longer lifespan analysis, for example, an analysis of the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey and Haynes that I've talked about in previous episodes in surveys one, two, and three, they pulled all of that data and they found that the largest national, nationally representative cohort of United States adults determined that the greatest longevity was in the overweight category. Here's what's also interesting. In a comprehensive review of the research pooled data from over 350,000 people from 26 studies, which was looked at in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, and reviewed and approved by CDC, found that people in overweight categories are associated with greater longevity than people in the thin or what they consider normal weight. Don't like the word normal, but there it is. Oh boy. By the way, we have other studies that show a greater longevity in people who are in the overweight category. Now, why am I talking about the overweight category? Because that's where it starts, folks. People gain a little bit of weight and they think, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with me. I'm not going to belong to that perfect culture that I'm supposed to belong to. Look a certain way. And so they start the weight loss journeys. And I multiple plural there. Multiple because they try one diet, lose weight, then gain it back, then try another diet, lose weight, gain it back. And they end up 20 or 30 years down the road, higher originally from where they started. Look, folks, one of the things that I'm not trying to say here is that thin people should go ahead and gain weight and everybody will be equal. No, that's not body diversity. (laughs) That's not accepting differences from people. We have to know that our lived experiences, our bodies, our culture, our ethnicities, our work, our finances, we're all different in a lot of different ways. And so this is not about, oh, I am telling people, don't worry, just eat a ton of food that's going to make you gain weight and everybody gain weight. That's not what I'm talking about here. Some people that don't gain weight, don't gain weight because they have a relationship to food where they pay attention to their body. Some people that gain weight or are in a large body have the same relationship, but they're healthy, like the studies show, (laughs) longevity. You also have to take into consideration something that's interesting. If you've never gained weight, you never had to lose it. So is it the weight gain that's the problem, or is it the weight loss? If you ask me, it's the weight loss, because every time we see weight loss, there is a very high likelihood that we see weight gain. So what do we do here? In my opinion, in my humble opinion, 
if you're considering bariatric surgery, I would definitely first and foremost listen to this podcast episode <laughs> because I think it's chock full of some good information about what the statistics actually show. And yes, some of it comes from my experience. But what I also think is important is that a person that is considering bariatric surgery know that they're doing this because of not just health reasons. I totally get it. There are a, a lot of health concerns that are out there, but we can actually get people in large bodies to a healthier place. We can help control blood sugar levels. We can help control blood pressure. We can help people sleep better. We can help people uh, have more energy. There are a lot of things that we can do in a large body, but it does take one small bite approach. This is the reason, one of the reasons why I named this podcast as such. People who then, like Isabel, find that compassion, find that kindness, appreciation, gratitude, self-love, can get to a place where they are respecting their bodies and eating in line with their values, with things that really mean something. Really mean something means I'm not going to sacrifice eating because I have to work harder because I don't know anybody who's lying on their deathbed wishing they would have worked harder. I do think it's important to understand that it is difficult. And I do want to give that some agency. Full stop. I think that it does go back to the quote. Reconsidering something we believe deeply, like weight loss, can threaten our identities. Who are we if we're not in a thin body? Making it feel as if we're losing a part of ourselves. We're not. We're rethinking this because you can, and I'll tell you in a lot of client situations, they come to know themselves even better. So folks, I hope that helps you with some background, some information. I really appreciate you for taking the time to listen to me talk about this stuff. I find a lot of passion in helping clients and people work through these very challenges, and I am happy to do that for you. So is my staff. You got to check us out at Orozco Nutrition. I know, shameless plug here. Check out our team uh, Kia Bourne, Jennifer Baugh, Reagan Perkins, myself. Come online and make a 15, 20 minute appointment. We also have a group cohort class that's starting up in a few weeks. So stay tuned to that. I'll have more information on that. We've got a lot of rave reviews from our last group. And so we also have an online forum and membership together that a lot of people come to as well to hear ideas. So you'll be a part of that after you do the group course. And we've got some online courses that are coming your way as well. As well as, yes, my book is also coming out soon. There'll be a chock full of information like Isabel's story and more in the book. So stay tuned. Pre-sales are coming March 8th. So if you're listening to this in the present, they are coming out March 8th. 2022. And then the sale of the book is going to finally get released on Amazon in April. And uh, I am looking for some people to be a part of the launch group. Because, you know, when you're self-publishing, it really helps to get reviews and, hey, I got to do my own marketing, right? <laughs> so folks, 
I appreciate you for listening in and letting me rant a little bit about my business, about my book. I really hope that you could uh, drop me a line. Let me know what your thoughts are. Feel free to email us. F- email us at info at orozconutrition.com. That's O-R-O-Z as in zebra, C as in Charlie, O as in Osco, nutrition.com. Info at orozconutrition. Or hey, you know what? Drop us some stars and a review in Apple Podcasts. That would really help us a tremendous amount. I read those reviews and I love reading them on the episodes as well. You can do that. And if you haven't yet, remember, click on that follow or subscribe button so you get these episodes downloaded to your device every Wednesday when they air, sometimes on Fridays when I do Friday Foodcasts. All right, folks, thank you so much for listening in once again. I greatly appreciate your time. And remember, chop that diet mentality, fuel your body, and nourish your soul. See you soon. Oh, yeah.